Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the new episode of Talking France, a podcast by The Local made possible thanks to all our paying members. On this week's show, we will hear about the real chances of there being blackouts in France this winter and why the French government can't simply blame Vladimir Putin and his war in Ukraine. We'll hear about the Frenchman taking on Elon Musk and we'll also get into the thorny subject of what the French and the English really think of each other, including the views of Britain's ambassador to France. It's nearly Christmas and that means a lot of our listeners and readers will be on the move. We'll explain just what's in store for those travelling over the next few weeks in France and abroad. And on the subject of travel, we'll explain why France has banned internal flights between certain French cities. I'm your host, Ben McPartland, and to provide all the news, information and insight into what's going on in France, I'll be joined by the brains of this podcast, the team at The Local France, editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield and politics expert John Litchfield. Emma, Jen, good to have you with us. There is a hugely important event involving France this weekend. Emma, what am I talking about? Is it the Fête de Lumière down in Lyon, lovely light festival? Uh, it's an important event, but it's not the one I'm talking about. No, Jen, any ideas? Uh, I don't know about this weekend, but I know that the government is releasing their new retirement plans next week. Ooh, Jen, no, I'm definitely not talking about retirement plans. Come on, Emma, you can say it. Is there some kind of football match on, Ben? There is. There is a quarterfinal in the World Cup between France and England. And Saturday's football clash between England and France, Ole Beef versus Le Frogs, has obviously increased cross-channel tensions. Well, if you believe certain parts of the UK press and on social media, it's also made a life a little bit more fraught for the English living in France and the French in the UK, of whom we'll hear more about shortly. But this week, the rivalry between the two countries has spilled outside the football pitch, as it often does. There's been talk of England fans boycotting baguettes and croissants. And in France, there's been certain upset over images of a croissant stuffed with fish fingers and cheese. You've seen this one, haven't you guys? <laughs> yes, I've got to say that looks absolutely disgusting. Yeah. It does, it does. But I probably would try it. It's been all over social media this week. We cannot verify these images, uh, but nevertheless, the match is an excuse for a bit of French bashing from the English or Anglo-baiting from the French. I've even been sent images of Joan of Arc, France's unofficial patron saint, suggesting, of course, the French will take revenge on the pitch for the role the English played in her death. It's all just light-hearted banter, of course, but it isn't always that way between the French and the English when it comes to their relations. Someone who knows a fair bit about cross-channel flare-ups is, of course, the British ambassador to France, Mena Rawlings, who we spoke to this week. Let's hear what she had to say. What's the atmosphere been like in Paris this week? So it's been very cold in terms of the temperature, but I think quite hot 
in terms of the anticipation for the big match on Saturday between France and England, I was reading L'Equipe yesterday, which had the fantastic headline, God Save Our King, about Mbappe, of course, rather than King Charles. So, yeah, I think there's some good rivalry, some good banter going on between us and people in the uh, French community and our French contacts. But, yeah, we're all gearing up for Saturday. Absolutely. And, I mean, would you say that's quite actually quite emblematic of the French-English relationship, that it's a rivalry, but it's quite a friendly one. It's, like, jokey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I think in some ways football is deadly serious, right? And we're all really serious about wanting England to win. But you're absolutely right. It's also something really positive, really light. It reflects the fact that both of our nations have got incredible football teams, which reflect the diversity, I think, of both of our societies. So the football's been great, yeah. Looking forward to Saturday. And what's your prediction for the big match? So I am predicting, controversially, an England win. And if you ask me the score, I would probably go for 3-2 to England. And the reason for that is because I think our squad is amazing and has got massive depth and strength. And I'm confident that over the full 90 minutes, or even if there's extra time, England will win. Fantastic. Well, let's see if you're right. Thanks to Mena from that. Now, away from the football pitch, someone who knows a fair bit about the recent history of French bashing by the English is John Litchfield. I asked John, where does it all originate from? Well, it's interesting. Because this is an England-France match, it does actually kind of focus attention on where this is coming from because it's not British, really. Scots, I know, I think Welsh people have a particularly anti-French feeling either. It is an English thing, I think, and especially entertained by the English-based media in Britain, but not just by them. Where does it come from? I don't know, really. It's a very strange thing, isn't it? There is a certain amount of kind of teasing of Britain in the, in the French media and amongst French people, but nothing like as kind of insistent and as, as vicious sometimes as you get from the English side of the channel. I think it's partly that, you know, we are an island and we look out on the world and what we see is the French. So it's them that we sort of pick on. The French are kind of a continental power and they look around, they have lots of neighbours that they like to tease and dislike or like. Um, and so they don't sort of have the same obsession with England or with Britain that we have with France. And it seems that the, sometimes it feels like, you know, the English press or English po- British politicians, we should say, uh, often try to cover their own inadequacies or divert attention with a bit of cheap French bashing. We've seen it quite recently, you know, perhaps even more since Brexit and with the kind of fraught negotiations that have taken place and and maybe with France's president, Emmanuel Macron, being quite openly pro-European. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, but you know, the only reason to do that is because they assume that the media will like it and that the people who read the media and people generally will, will lap it up. And I think, therefore, there is a sort of constituency for that kind of French bashing in England and making that distinction, not necessarily in Britain as a, as, as a whole. Yeah, I think that is right. And it's not something that the French government's going for, especially because I don't think it really there's much of a constituency for it. You know, I don't think there's many votes for Macron or anyone else and being seeming to be anti-British. John, if we reverse it, like you've alluded to, the French are not immune to a certain kind of Anglo bashing, although it does feel it's a little bit more Mickey taking perhaps on the subject of food or weather, but it does happen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it does. I mean, I think French people have a very weird impression of what goes, that don't know Britain, and of course there are many French people that live there and do visit there and have a sense of what it is. I've always said the French seem to have this kind of kind of schizophrenic view of Britain. They think that we're all kind of people in bowler hats and pinstripe suits or sensible skirts, or we're kind of punks with purple hair and 
razor blades hanging off our ears or smashing up pubs. You know, they don't seem to think there's much in between. So you do get a kind of a cartoon view of Britain as there's a cartoon view of rents in, in, in England. I must say, though, that in, what is it, in the 25 years or more of living in France, I've only once ever been attacked for being British, and that was by a, a farmer during an outbreak of mad cow disease, or no, I think it was actually foot and mouth disease that had come over from Britain. So he had a definite axe to grind. But on several occasions, I've had sort of rude comments and signs made at me while driving through Britain in cars with French number plates. So there you go. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, in general, we've just been discussing that the, the welcome for English people in France is pretty warm on the whole. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always say that in Normandy, I was much more popular than the Parisians were, you know, because um, the local people seem to have more attendance for Parisian weekenders than they did for, for British people coming in. I think there's still a lot of warmth towards Britain in France because of two world wars. You know, I think that is forgotten. We We tend to have a very cartoon view of what happened in those world wars and, and not recognise the huge French contribution to their own defence in, in the First World War. And, and um, you know, it was more of a contribution at the beginning of the Second World War than we ever give credit for as well. Uh, whereas I think that a lot of French people, especially the older French people, not so much true necessarily the young ones, do remember what happened in 1944 and 1914 to 18. So there are many reasons, I think, why there, there are different attitudes, those two ways across the channel. But, I, you know, we are all just sort of all the same people in many ways. You know, I, I've said before that we're like sort of sisters that live next door to one another and always constantly looking over the fence to see what the other is doing. We, the British, more than the French, it should be said. But there is this same kind of sisterly, quarrelsome relationship in which I think both countries kind of admire each other for qualities they have more than they'd like to admit. Perfect. Thank you, John. Really well summed up there. Emma, really interesting hear John's opinions and how he's been treated by the French over the years. Have you found anything uh, hostile here since you've been in France? Honestly, as a Brit in France, I've never been treated anything other than warmly by the French and any jokes. And yes, there are jokes there, usually on the subject of our terrible food, our terrible weather and our notoriously poor seduction techniques. But the jokes that happen there, they're fun jokes. It's not mean or aggressive or anything like that. It's lighthearted. And I've also found that the average French person is pretty knowledgeable about the UK. They're certainly interested in the UK, like maybe the film and the music, but also the history and the politics. So like, for example, your you're talking about strikes, maybe someone will clock your accent and say, ah, oh, but of course in your country, Margaret Thatcher in the 80s destroyed the unions. So, you know, they, they're aware of our history. Although one guy did admit that he'd learned everything about the miners' strike by watching the British film Billy Elliot. But the big revelation for me was how a British accent is regarded in France. I mean, in the UK, we tend to see the French accent as being the, the best accent. It's elegant, it's sophisticated, it's romantic. But weirdly, the French seem to regard British accents as cool and sexy too. And I've lost count of the number of people who've told me that my accent is trop mignon, which is too too cute. Yeah, I've actually had the opposite experience as an American living in France. People tend to be disappointed that I'm not British. Uh, when I started my master's program, it was actually me and the only other native English speakers were other Americans, and the French students were very disappointed that they'd be spending so much time with people who spoke English with an American accent, and unfortunately the British accent would not be rubbing off on them. <laughs> And what sort of reaction do you uh, get from French people when they're talking about the British? What, what do they tell you about us? I feel like I've never heard anything overtly negative from the French about the British. I was asking my partner about this last night, and he was saying that he doesn't know of any French people that have hatred or animosity towards the British either. He was just saying, you know, there's 
the petite blague, the little jokes, but nothing malicious. Yeah, Emma, we should stress, I think, after Brexit, we were very grateful to kind of the French for allowing us to kind of making it easier for us to stay in France. I remember, you know, getting our residency permits and all that kind of thing. They really made the process fairly easy. And on the subject of Brits in France, Jen, you've got some more information. Yes, I do. So there are 165,000 Brits who were given post-Brexit residency permits in France, so meaning that they were already living in France prior to 2021. So that's about our estimate of the number of British people that live in France more or less full-time. And when did they come? Well, there's an interesting trend that happened here. So in the 90s and early 2000s is when we saw a huge boom of Brits coming to France. The research organization INSEE recorded a 30% increase in the number of Brits living in France between 1990 and 1990 and then another 30% jump between 1999 and 2006. So that's really when we saw a large entrance of British people coming to France in the first place. So where do they all live, Jen? So we have to look at data from 2016 for this, but the parts of France that are known for having significant numbers of British residents are Brittany. Unsurprisingly, it's it's on the other side of the channel. And then Charente, Dordogne, and Haute-Vienne, which is where Limoges is, are also significant places uh, for Brits living in France. And then, of course, large cities like Paris. And of the British people that are living in France, there's a large portion of them who are retired, about a third. And those folks are more likely to be living in the rural areas like Charente and Dordogne, as I mentioned. But the majority of other people are working and studying in France, as you might expect, and they're living mostly in urban areas like Paris. But there's also a large number of second homeowners. Actually, 86,000 of the second homes in France were owned by Brits as of 2016. And what about the French living in England, they will be feeling tense as we are in France this week. That's a slightly different population. Yeah, so there are actually more French people living in the UK than there are British people living in France. About 240,000 French people applied for the EU settlement scheme in the UK from 2018 to 2021. And London, actually, is sometimes called France's sixth biggest city. This phrase was originally coined by Sarkozy when he visited the UK in 2008. But that's because the majority of the French people that are living in the UK are living in the London area. So there's a pretty large number of them. And then uh, the UK is actually the third most popular destination for French people that are choosing to live outside of France generally. So the French people that are living abroad. And that's after Switzerland and the United States. Very interesting. Now, just getting back to this football match, it's always a chance to learn a few new French phrases and terms that you probably don't learn about in the school books, one of which is les bifs. This obviously comes from les roses bifs, which is like the French slang term for the English. I've been called a beef all week. Emma, do you know where this comes from, roses beef? Do you know what? I only learned this week where it comes from because I always thought it was to do with food and uh, the British love of roast beef. But apparently it's also to do with the fact that we're very pasty and go bright red in the sun. So we have a tendency to to burn and look like a a side of Mm. rare roast beef. Yeah, I think it's originally from the uh, cooking reference, isn't it? But yeah, the sunburnt Brit plays into that as well. It's pretty much an equivalent to how we call the frogs. come from frogs' legs. I've been getting text messages all week saying, on va bouffer les bifs. You know what that means? We're going to eat the beefs. Yeah, basically, we're going to... I mean, you can translate it as we're going to smash them, but yeah, my phone is full of all that bouffé les beefs. And look, we've said that, you know, when it comes to the kind of French mocking other countries, they do tend to mock the Belgians, perhaps even have a bigger rivalry with Italians and Germans. But they do have some jokes about the British. Do you want to hear one? Yes, yes. always. 
Now, like you alluded to, Emma, the French mock some of our the things that Britain is known for, whether it's the weather, and one of those is the fact that the British are known for being reserved, especially when we're out of our comfort zone. Now, a plane crashes on a desert island. There's only a few survivors, three Spanish, three French people, and an Englishman. Six months later, one of the Spanish men has killed the other and is now living with the Spanish woman. Three French people have obviously become a threesome. And the Englishman is still on his own waiting to be introduced to the others. <laughs> there you go. That's an example of a French joke about the British. And we'll end it on that note. Thanks, guys. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Guys. Now, moving away from football to more serious subjects, and it's time to turn to the news and talking points in France this week. Jen, we're suddenly talking about the chances of power cuts again in France this winter. Fill us in on the latest. So it's still hard to say whether or not there are going to be power cuts this winter in France. According to Olivier Véran, the French government spokesperson, we're not living in a disaster movie. And President Macron has been telling people that they should not panic. He's reiterated that France is a major power. And he said, we have a great energy system and we're going to get through the winter despite the war. But at the same time, the president and other officials have been reiterating that power cuts will be avoided if general energy usage in France is reduced by 10%. And there are some other stipulations, too. A lot of it comes down to how severe the winter is going to be and whether or not France can manage to get its nuclear fleet back up and running. And these power cuts, it's worth mentioning, they are a last resort option. Even if the grid is extremely strained, RTE, the French energy provider, has said that they're first going to request that businesses take specific actions. And so the chances of power cuts happening is really going to depend on several factors. Okay, and to understand this issue more, I turned to John Litchfield, our politics expert. I asked him, what are the chances of power going out this winter and who exactly is to blame? Still very difficult to know, Ben, I think. Um, the uh, power stations, which were sort of more than half um, out of action in the summer, are gradually coming back online, but behind the schedule that was originally put forward, and I think there's something now about 37 out of 56 and two or three more expected this week. So, but France is still something like 10, 12 gigawatts, which have whatever they are, a lot of electricity anyway, behind what it would normally be producing at this time of year. So much of that has been made up by reduced use, uh, especially by industry, but also by domestic users. And that seems to be 
intensifying. Uh, this week, it's even the amount of use has gone down compared to what would be the case in early December. A lot of that depends on the weather, of course. You know, if there's going to be a cold spell, then people will be using electricity more. So I was speaking to an expert this week who said that it all depended on two things, really, whether there would be warm weather in France and whether there would be wind in the North Sea, not because France has lots of electricity generated by wind in the North Sea, but the British do, the Germans do, the Dutch and Belgians do. And France, because these power stations have been out of action, uh, has been importing electricity in a big way. And it's normally a big exporter of electricity. So whether it can make the gap up this winter, especially January, February, I think will depend on its ability to carry on importing that electricity. Okay. I mean, on the one hand, we're getting told, you know, not to panic. On the other hand, it feels, you know, the the government are more concerned about likely power cuts than they were, let's say, a few months ago. Who's to blame if there are power cuts? Do we pin it all on Putin? And the war in Ukraine? Many things should be blamed on Vladimir Putin, but I don't think that the France's power shortages have much to do with it. The effect it is having is that the cost of the electricity that France is buying in is much higher than it would have been because general electricity prices wholesale level in the European electricity market are much higher than they were last winter and previous winters. But the reason why it's needing to import this electricity and short of electricity is a long and complicated story going back over many years with France once having had this very, very powerful nuclear industry, which supplies, I think, something like 72% of the electricity in France, having been allowed to kind of drift. And I think Macron deserves some of the blame for that. It took him until the beginning of this year to finally decide that France needed a new generation of nuclear power stations and, and to start work on that. So successive governments have failed really to grasp future energy strategy and make clear decisions on whether France would remain a nuclear energy power or would move to renewable energy. And in a sense, they've done neither and they're now having to try and catch up. Interesting to hear from John there. Now, Jen, the French government did send out a leaflet to local officials telling them to begin preparing contingency plans in case targeted cuts are needed. What would happen in the event of a power cut? Well, the first thing that you should know is that you won't be surprised. The lights are not just going to switch off randomly. You're going to be able to track the situation using the website and application EchoWatt, which basically will give the status of the entire energy grid. And it will tell you what color zone you're living in. So if you're in a green zone, you're good to go. If it's yellow, then there's a warning that cuts might be possible and that people should reduce their energy consumption. And red means that cuts are inevitable without a decrease of consumption. You'll be able to see that, and then you'll also be able to see an energy forecast. So if your area is considered a load shedding zone, that means there could be blackouts, then you're going to know the day before. So at 3 p.m., you'll be informed as to whether or not your département is going to be affected by a power outage. And then later at 5 p.m., you'll be able to enter your own address to see if you'll be personally impacted. And local authorities, as you mentioned, Ben, they've had to come up with some plans in the event of a power cut. Um, And these have mostly involved trains and public transport, schools, so potentially closing schools in the mornings if there are power outages, and emergency response programs, so what to do in the event of an emergency during a power outage, uh, dialing emergency numbers, etc. And it's worth noting that these power cuts are never going to run more than two hours and that they would not affect the same area two days in a row. And they'd also be confined to the hours in the morning, so before 1 p.m., and the hours in the evening after 6 p.m. And you can get more detailed information about what to expect from French power cuts this winter on our website. Thanks, Jen. And moving on, as we do each week, we pick a personality who's been in the news in France. 
This week, we've picked a man named Thierry Breton, a Frenchman squaring up for a fight with Elon Musk. Emma, tell us about Thierry and this fight with Musk. Well, Breton is the EU Commissioner for Internal Market with responsibility for industry, digital, space, defence, audiovisual and tourism. So one of those really snappy EU job titles there. But it's the digital part of his job that's really propelling him into the news this week because, as you said, he does appear to be squaring up to take on the the US-based tech millionaire Elon Musk who is, of course, the new owner of Twitter. It's really shaping up to be a sort of a clash of ideologies personified through these two middle-aged men. Because Musk, since his buyout of Twitter, seems to be positioning himself as a kind of right-wing libertarian against any kind of controls, whereas Breton is more the representative of the EU way of doing things, which tends to incline towards sort of tighter state controls on tech companies. And appropriately for a battle about Twitter, the two have taken to tweeting each other, with Breton telling Musk, last week, uh, l'oiseau volera selon nos règles, which means the, the bird must fly according to our rules. The bird being Twitter, obviously. Breton has also published a checklist of what the EU says that Twitter needs to do, and that includes implementing transparent user policies, significantly reinforcing content moderation, checking hate speech, limited targeting advertising, and tackling disinformation. And I think out of all of those, the content moderation and the hate speech are really going to be the key things that Twitter need to tackle, because the EU actually already has legislation in place that came in place earlier this year. It's called the Digital Services Act, and it requires big tech companies to act quickly quickly to remove illegal content and also hate speech. Uh, Any companies that fail to comply face being fined 6% of their annual revenues and they could be banned from being operated in EU countries for repeated breaches. Now, obviously, we know that the EU is notoriously slow and cumbersome when it comes to actually enforcing its own rules, but it does seem that Breton is pretty determined on this one. He's certainly making a lot of public statements of intent and he has the support of French President Emmanuel Macron, who met with Musk on his recent trip to the US. Okay, so just finally, tell us a bit more about Thierry Breton himself. Is he actually a Breton? (laughs) I don't think so, no. He was born in Paris. His family may be from Brittany, but he was born in Paris. He's been at the EU since 2019, and you might have heard of him during the pandemic because he was one of the figureheads that was talking about the EU dispute with pharma company AstraZeneca over their COVID vaccine orders. You might also recognise him because he's got that fairly classic old rich French guy hair. It's like a big grey bouffant. So once you've seen him, you'd probably recognise him again. Before he was in Brussels, he was involved in French politics. He was the economy minister under Nicolas Sarkozy. And before that, he was a businessman and he specialised in electronics and tech companies. He's kind of did like turnaround for companies that were in financial trouble. He ended up at France Telecom and kind of bailed them out a bit. And he's also, as French politicians tend to be, a fairly prolific author. He's written nine books, mostly non-fiction, concerning with technology, the internet in France. But he's also written a novel about cyberspace, which I haven't read. Okay, really interesting. Thanks, Emma. And moving on to where, which parts of France are we talking about in the news, Jen, and why? We're talking about trains and planes and a ban on certain plane routes in France. Can you explain more? Yeah, so this week we're talking about uh, domestic flights in France because recently the European Commission decided to hold up France's decision to ban domestic air travel on routes that are already served by trains in less than 2.5 hours. So basically that means if your train ride is under 2.5 hours, then there shouldn't be a plane route that's available. You should be taking the train instead. This provision was actually already included in the 2021 Climate and Resilience Law in France, um, and it actually made France the first country in Europe to implement a measure like this. 
Okay, sounds pretty radical, but in the end, not many routes have been banned. Is that right? Yeah, so it sounds really radical and it might be extended more in the future, but currently it's really only impacting three routes. And these are three routes flying out of the Paris Orly airport. So it's Paris Orly to Bordeaux, Nantes, and Lyon. There are some exceptions to it. So actually, you can get from Paris to Bordeaux on a plane, but you'd have to be departing from the Paris Charles de Gaulle airport. And that kind of gets around the rule because technically, it takes more than that 2.5 hour window to get from Paris Charles de Gaulle to Bordeaux. And it's actually the same for Nantes as well. So for the Paris Charles de Gaulle flight, that has been maintained. And we'll see whether that is maintained in the future, but for now it's still available. Okay, and just on some of the classic routes, can I go from Paris to Marseille by plane? Yes, you Not can. That I want to. Yes, yes, you absolutely can. Um, and that's because the travel time by train is definitely more than two and a half hours. So you're still going to continue having flights from Paris to Toulouse, Paris to Marseille, and Paris to Nice. Fantastic. Thanks for that, Jen. And on the subject of travel, Christmas is approaching, which, as I mentioned earlier, many of our listeners and readers will be on the move. Emma, this is a huge subject for us, travel in general, but especially around Christmas time. Previous Christmases have been marred by kind of chaos at the border or strikes. What's in store this Christmas? Well, if you're attempting to go to the UK, which I am going to try to do, there are a couple of things that you kind of need to be aware of. The first is the Eurostar has threatened strike action. This is just UK security staff on the Eurostar, so it's not everybody. And that situation still seems quite fluid because negotiations are ongoing. I think if it does happen, it's probably more likely that we're going to be talking about disruption and some trains cancelled rather than a complete block. But that's something that's going to happen. And then on the UK railways, there's also a lot of strike days plan so if you're going to try and travel in in the UK by train definitely check the strike days because it seems like there's a lot and that's a very entrenched battle. I mean as ever with strike action things can change at the last minute so we'll be doing a lot of this on the local website. Okay what about in France? So if you're coming to France and you're planning to use the French National Rail Service, SNCF, you should be aware that unions have filed a provisional strike notice for the weekends of Christmas and New Year. Now, as Emma mentioned, that situation could be resolved or things could change at the last minute. But definitely keep an eye on the situation if you're going to be traveling between December 23rd and 26th and December 30th and January 2nd on French National Rail Lines. Okay, so it sounds like there may be some strife on the rails. What about for those who are flying this Christmas? Guys. Yeah, so there are also some airlines that could be impacted by strike action. So far, the cabin crew at both EasyJet and Air France have also filed provisional strike notices for the Christmas period. But again, that's going to depend on how these pay negotiations go, and there's no definite date yet. Okay, what about renting a car? I know in the summer prices were kind of astronomical. What's the latest on car hire? Is it worth it? So I did a quick Google search on this to see how much it would cost to rent a car from December 22nd to January 2nd instead. I figured that covers the whole of the Christmas New Year period. And if you rent a car from Charles de Gaulle Airport, the best deals that I saw for the smaller cars, like a Renault Clio, for example, was around 650 euro. If you're looking for a larger car, that price would go up by about 100 to 200 more euro. But if you're going to be driving in France, you should also consider the cost of fuel and tolls, uh, aside from just the flat cost of renting a vehicle. Excellent. Thanks, guys, for that really informative roundup. And all I can suggest to listeners is to keep an eye on the local.fr over the next few weeks. We'll have all the latest news on rails, fuel prices, planes strikes you name it but the local.fr is the place to keep an eye on 
And just before we wrap up the episode, as we do each week, we have a few life hacks for you, a few tips if you live in France. Shall I start? We've been talking about travel and driving. I signed up for one of these telepiage gadgets to get through tolls. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. Oh, you do? Right, okay. Well, I better explain. You put it on your windscreen and it means you can approach the toll and the, the barrier just goes up with a little beep. It's fantastic. You don't have to get your credit card out. You don't have to wind down your window. And there's certain lanes at the tolls which you can go through and you don't even have to stop at all. Although certain ones are often full of people who have the same gadget as me. So actually it's best to avoid them. But the thrill of the barrier going up is fantastic guys every time it happens we cheer in our car i really recommend it yeah they're really good if you're coming from the uk as well because obviously if you don't have a passenger the window to pay is on the wrong side for your car so you then have to like try and scramble across the front seats to access the pay things particularly useful for those driving british cars emma What's your tip this week? Well, it's maybe a little bit less practical, but honestly, it will change your life. You need to get involved with Vin Chaux, which is France's hot spiced wine that appears every winter. And unlike the UK, where like mulled wine is very much a Christmas thing, in France, Vin Chaux happens all winter long. It's served outdoor venues, including sports grounds, so it's a great way to stay warm while you're out on the terrace watching your tip a match. of the week is to encourage people to drink. Yes, but very specifically drink Vin Chaux because it's delicious. It's a winter warmer. It's a very French thing. You know, this time of year, most of the cafes are selling it. And there's also, I've noticed, been a real increase in places selling it to take away. I think this was something that we kind of saw during the pandemic when we had these long bar closures. A lot of cafe owners clocked on to the fact that uh, offering people a lovely warming alcoholic drink to take away was a good idea. And it seems to me like those are here to stay, which is a, a very positive development, I think. Yeah, you can smell it in the streets as you go around Paris often with the bars, have the kind of the big pot set up outside the bar to attract people in. Exactly. It's really cheering. Jen, what about you? Final tip. So my tip is using this website called Jean de Confiance. So you might have already heard of the website Le Bon Coin, which is basically the Craigslist of France. You can sell used items or buy used items on there. You can actually even look at apartments on that website. But the other option, the one that I recommend more, specifically if you're looking for something that might be of a bit higher quality, is Jean de Confiance. The one thing you should know about this website is that in order to join, you actually have to be recommended by another person that's already on the website. But once you're on the site, uh, it's it's a little bit, I think, more verified in terms of the types of material that you'll be able to find. So, for example, I would trust the furniture on Jean de Confiance a little bit more than on Le Bon Coin. Interesting. I'm going to check that out. It sounds really good, especially for buying secondhand, as is the kind of trend now, given the price of goods in shops. Emma, Jen... Thanks for joining us once again on Talking France. That's the end of this week's episode. We'll be back with more next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>